0: What's up, everybody? How you doing? Welcome back. It is time for another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America. Today, people, I'm going to kind of read the news again. This episode is episode 61, entitled Moving Right Along. And the reason why I called today's show that is because I'm going to illustrate to you today my fellow Americans, that everything I've been talking to you guys about as far as the big plan, the big club's big plan for world government and enslavement and whatever else, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe, who knows, right? I'm just talking here. I'm just talking. But there's been some recent news that I have stumbled upon that I want to uh go over today so let's uh start with this this is my favorite one right here i'm gonna start with the best stuff first (laughs) the united states could default on national debt as soon as mid november if you believe that the federal government is on track to default on the national debt sometime in between the middle of October and the middle of November without action to raise the debt ceiling. Haha. <laughs> There's the phrase that pays. According to an analysis released Friday. The Bipartisan Policy Center, a centrist think tank that closely tracks the debt limit, said the Treasury Department will likely run out of ways to keep the U.S. solvent sometime after the start of the fiscal year. BPC, the Bipartisan Policy Center, originally projected the so-called X-Date, quote-unquote, to occur as soon as the beginning of October, but slightly delayed and narrowed that window after an unexpectedly strong summer surge in federal revenues BPC experts warned that a potential slowdown and deepening uncertainty driven by rising COVID-19 cases could could shift that window sooner, bringing the U.S. closer to an unprecedented default on the national debt. Very interesting how they said deepening uncertainty driven by rising COVID-19 cases. Another key word. It's unclear what the next month or two is going to bring in federal revenues, and that can make a, di- a big difference in terms of the timing, said Shea Akabas, Director of Economic Policy for BPC. But what's also clear is that they don't have much more time than the end of the fiscal year. The debt ceiling is a legal limit on how much the federal government can owe while it pays bills already approved by the President and Congress. Raising, suspending, or reimposing the debt ceiling does not change the level of the national debt or control future spending, but rather gives the Treasury more room to borrow and pay off previous obligations. You know why I find that part of this article very interesting? Because that's exactly what President Obama said when they asked him about what happens when you raise the debt ceiling, And he says, "Well, pretty much verbatim uh raising, suspending, or reimposing the debt ceiling does not change the level of the national debt or control future spending, but rather gives the treasury more room to borrow and pay off previous obligations." <laughs> A two-year suspension of the debt ceiling expired August 1st, and the Treasury Department has since used a range of extraordinary measures, quote-unquote, that's code for print and money, to prevent the U.S. from breaching the debt limit, as it has during many previous standoffs. But while the federal government has never allowed the U.S. to default on its debt, a deep partisan stalemate and alarming uncertainty about the economy have posed significant obstacles to a deal. Republicans have refused to support an increase to the debt ceiling, debt limit rather, unless Democrats agree to spending cuts and debt reduction measures, arguing that the party in control of the House, Senate, and White House can do it on their own without GOP support. And pff, the fact that neither side budges people goes right back to what I was talking about, uh, I think, in the Chomsky episode, when I said, you know, there's incentive to not reach up across the aisle, and the powers that be don't want us to be reaching across the aisle. They don't want us to be cooperative. They don't want that. They want this perpetual state of emergency, this perpetual state of war, so that can so that they can 1984 the future generations of this country right into socialist dictatorship oblivion. Democrats, however, say Republicans have an obligation to keep the U.S. solvent after adding trillions to the debt under former President Trump and raising the debt ceiling without the major reforms they're asking Democrats to support. They're talking past each other now rather than talking to each other, which is not a great sign when you're only a month away from a potential X date. And that dynamic obviously has to change If we want to see a resolution. And that's the whole point. Mr. Acabas is saying, pretty much, that they don't want to see a resolution. If Congress allows the U.S. to default on its debt for the first time in history, the implications could be disastrous. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And part of our debt is owned by China. And there's, I'm going to get to it later, but there's a big, uh, I forget what it is, something in the financial institution of China that they say may fail pretty soon and there's a lot of speculation about how how that's going to affect the global markets. So, that's scary. Because in in that situation could lie a road to war. And I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen. But if the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior behavior <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> the us dollar and trillions of dollars in treasury sec- securities rather And Treasury securities underpin the global financial system and are considered among the safest global assets thanks to the size, strength, and resilience of the American economy. But any potential breach of the full faith and credit of the United States could have catastrophic consequences. (laughs) Uh, We've talked about this stuff before on the show. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned in a Wednesday letter to lawmakers that treading too close to a default would, quote, likely cause irreparable damage to the U.S. economy and global financial markets. At a time when American families, communities, and businesses are still suffering from the effects of the ongoing global pandemic, it would be particularly irresponsible to put the full faith and credit of the United States at risk, she continued Acabas largely agreed, saying the impact of a default would be somewhere between messy and catastrophic. (laughs) Oh man, I am not feeling too enthused or excited about the future of the American dollar, people. Democratic leaders have not laid out their plans for raising the debt ceiling yet, but have ruled out including a hike or suspension in the sprawling infrastructure, social services, and climate bill they plan to pass through budget reconciliation. While Democrats could theoretically raise the debt ceiling without GOP votes through reconciliation, the package may not be ready by the time the X date arrives. It'll be interesting to find out if that was by design. Instead, Democrats are likely to attach a debt ceiling hike to another must-pass piece of legislation, such as a measure to avert a government shutdown and force Republicans to support it or potentially shoulder the blame for catastrophe. It's obviously tied up in all the politics that are going on right now on the Hill, and from my perspective, it makes Halloween this year even more dangerous and spooky. Oh my god. Pathetic, said Bill Hoagland, a senior vice president of the Bipartisan Policy Center who spent more than 30 years in various federal budget and management roles. And clearly, the only thing he did in those various federal budget and management roles for 30 years is come up with terrible dad joke one-liners trying to alleviate the pressure and the alarm that this news should bring A logical, rational mind. We're getting close, people. The plan is moving right along. The BPC has tracked the debt ceiling and X date since 2011 using models developed, in part, by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell, who was a visiting scholar at BPC before former President Obama nominated him to a seat on the Central Bank's Board of Governors. Hmm... That revolving door keeps on spinning, spinning, spinning into the future. Sing it, come on. That revolving door keeps on spinning into the future. (laughs) Oh, boy. Social security is projected to be insolvent a year earlier than previously forecasted. A Social Security Administration office in New York City last year, the pandemic exacerbated a decline in government revenues. Social Security Administration office in New York City, uh, let's see, said that the financial outlook for Social Security is eroding more quickly than previously expected as the coronavirus pandemic has drained government revenues and put additional strain on one of the nation's most important social safety net programs. (laughs) You mean that Ponzi scheme you guys have been running? (laughs) The overall finances for the Medicare, however, are expected to hold steady, though the health program is still forecast to face financial pressure in the coming years. Yeah, Medicare will probably always be there in some form. Annual government reports released on Tuesday on the solvency of the programs underscored the questions about their long-term viability at a time when a wave of baby boomers are retiring and the economy faces ongoing uncertainty. As variants of the coronavirus surge, allegedly the United States economy already faces soaring federal debt levels in the coming decades. But both Democrats and Republicans have been wary of making significant structural reforms to the popular programs. Having strong Social Security and Medicare programs is essential in order to ensure a secure retirement for all Americans, especially for our most vulnerable populations, said Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The Biden-Harris administration is, uh, is committed to safeguarding these programs and ensuring they continue to deliver economic security and health care to older Americans. Really? We'll see about that. Um, right now I'm thinking about Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> oh boy. Senior administration officials said that the long-term effects of the pandemic on the programs are unclear. that actuaries are forced to make assumptions about how long COVID would continue to cause unusual patterns of hospitalizations and deaths. And whether it would contribute to long-term disabilities among survivors. Oh boy. The Social Security uh old agent survivor insurance trust fund will now be depleted in 2033, a year earlier than previously projected. Um, and then I think I just went over all this. So, yeah. So that stuff's happening. That's fun. Makes me feel good. Uh, let's talk about Biden's 2020 budget. The 2020 fiscal year for the federal government begins October 1st. President Biden has, Biden has revealed uh, what he'd like to spend starting then. Uh, but any spending requires approval from both chambers of Congress, obviously. But here's what the plan includes. Ambitious total spending. Oh, more spending. President Biden would like the federal government to spend 6 trillion dollars in the 2022 fiscal year and for total spending to rise to 8.2 trillion by 2031. That would take the United States to its highest sustained levels of federal spending since World War II while running deficits, deficits above 1.3 trillion through the next decade. Okay? So right before I even continue with infrastructure and family plans and mandatory programs and discretionary spending, okay? Before I even continue what is that saying right there? More ambitious total spending, trillions of dollars that are going to continue, that are going to continue to put us and keep us on this track to, you know, oblivion, the down the downward spiral that will be the end of America. And a, a lot of you say, oh no no no, we're, you know, we're all in this together. Now we're all in debt together, right? So if the United States falls, so too falls many other countries around the world. Perhaps, maybe I don't know if that's true, but that's the alleged argument, right? So, and it goes back to what I, uh, you know, this entire story goes back to what I told you guys about in uh, that "Reality Lies, Damn Lies, and uh, Statistics" episode, where I played that clip from Jeremy Irons saying, "You know, who's who's the world in debt to? You know, like we're just everyone's just continuing to print money, and nobody is ever." It, it it's just going to mean nothing and be backed by nothing forever, and that's just how we're going to continue to run the civilization in this new world government. Really, <laughs> we're just going to live this fairy tale, like oh, we're all we're all in on it, we're all in the in on the joke. All the gold's gone. There's no there's no gold in Fort Knox, and the dollar isn't worth the paper it's printed on, and the ink that's printed on it. I mean, I mean. <laughs> It's literally just a Federal Reserve note. It's like an IOU. <laughs> this is as good as money. This is an IOU. <laughs> I mean, that's what it seems like to me. That's what it seems like is happening. Everyone's just kind of going, oh yeah, we're just going to keep put kicking the can down the road. Remember what uh, uh, Jim Rogers from Quantum Fund in the previous podcast when he was saying, you know, it's a good time to be old because someone eventually is going to be on the hook for all this shit. And, you know, this is one of the major reasons I I fear for your children. I don't fear for my children, because I don't have any children. I've said that before. But somebody's kids, or somebody's kids' kids' kids, someone's paying for this. And when that day comes, it's going to be a sad, sad day. And I really hope I'm not alive when it happens. Let's move on. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's finish up with Biden's plan here. Uh, let's see. So that was the ambitious total spending infrastructure plan. The budget outlines the president's desired first year of investment in his American Jobs Plan, which seeks to fund improvements to roads, bridges, public transit, and more uh, with a total of $2.3 trillion over eight years. The family's plan is that the budget also addresses the other Major spending proposal Biden has already rolled out his American Families plan aimed at bolstering the United States social safety net by expanding access to education, reducing the cost of childcare, and supporting women in the workforce. Hmm. Hmm. It kind of has vibes of, hey, just give your children to the state. We'll let the government educate your children. And so that both men and women can go to work. Further destroying those family bonds, keeping mom and dad at work, and letting the government raise the kid to be a mindless automaton, progressive, left wing, idiot, nut job eventually. <laughs> mandatory programs. As usual, mandatory spending on programs like Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare make up a significant portion of the proposed budget they are growing as Americans population ages hmm if only we could get that population under control then maybe we wouldn't be having all these problems <laughs> do you see how all this shit connects people? when does conspiracy theory become a conspiracy fact right right yada 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 etc 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 Andrew for America you're getting redundant discretionary spending funding for the individual budgets of the agencies and programs under the executive branch which would reach around 1.5 trillion in 2022 a 16 percent increase from the previous budget so that's probably to keep you know biden up on his feet and talking (laughs) and people i've been seeing some weird shit about biden lately like i just saw this video where he is commenting on this um this wind turbine, like, um, wing that spins around, you know, and dude, he, he's kind of looking like an android, man. He looks like a cybernetic organism. He kind of does this turn thing with his hip, and he's kind of obviously everyone's seeing that he's falling apart. I just saw this picture where there's this, like, it kind of looks like, uh, on, well, first of all, I don't know, before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, have you seen different pictures of his earlobe? Like, one in, old pictures he has like a a non-detached kind of hanging lobe and then in new pictures he has this this connected lobe that connects right to the side of his head and then recently I saw one where there's this little rectangular like tab sticking out from his ear where it looks like something was like you know a makeup artist was putting a face on him and like making up his face somehow with makeup and whatever else they're using it looks like he could just reach up and Grab that little square piece and just pull his face off. It's creepy, people. Go look very, very closely at Joe Biden's face and his mannerisms right now. It's creepy, and obviously this is a, a tinfoil hat wearing batshit crazy conspiracy nut job idea that I have. This is this is probably the craziest you'll ever hear me actually be on this. Podcasts and I'm really just joking Clearly But Man, I don't know, it just creeps me out Like what if Joe Biden's got like a doppelganger Android Maybe maybe they have AI technology That's progressed to that point right now And they're testing it They're testing it with the President of the United States Because if, if They can make the American people believe That the President of the United States is actually An organism that isn't the actual president of the United States, then, boy, they can pull the wool over everybody's eyes, can't they? As if they aren't already doing so. (laughs) I digress. I'm just saying. There's weird shit going on with Biden's ears, cheeks, face, eyebrows, mannerisms. Go watch. You be the judge. You be the judge. Okay, so uh, here we go. This is pretty funny. How Biden is going to pay for all this. The president would largely fund his agenda by raising taxes on corporations and high earners, which would begin to shrink budget deficits in the 2030s. Oh, really? Because, you know, why why so far in the future? Why is it going to take so long? I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Administration officials have said tax increases would fully offset the jobs and families plans over the course of 15 years, 15 years, which the budget request backs up. In the meantime, the budget deficit would remain above 1.3 trillion each year. The actuaries declined to make any estimates on the effect of Aduhelm, a very expensive Alzheimer's treatment that has recently that was recently approved by the FDA. The report said that officials are waiting for Medicare to issue guidance on how the drug will be covered before making any calculations. The drug could represent tens of billions of dollars in spending each year. Wow. Just to solve Alzheimer's, huh? That's that's interesting and curious, don't you think? Uh, maybe Biden's trying to live forever. <laughs> him and Bezos. I wonder if him and Bezos are having meetings. Hey, man. Let's let's become immortal gods, and live forever and rule the universe. Democrats in Congress are considering a host of changes to the Medicare program, such as adding new benefits, including coverage for dental, hearing, and vision. Uh, Medicare trust fund solvency is an incredibly important, long-standing issue, and we are committed to working. They're committed. They're committed people. They're committed to working with Congress. To continue building a vibrant, equitable, and sustainable Medicare program, they are committed. (laughs) They are committed to committing to the commitment of committing to you people that they are going to be committed to their goal. Uh, Alan Rappaport and Margot Sanger-Katz are the authors of this. Ellen Rappaport is an economic policy reporter based in Washington. He covers the Treasury Department and writes about taxes, trade, and fiscal matters. He previously worked for the Financial Times and The Economist. And then Margot Sanger-Katz is a domestic correspondent, a domestic correspondent, and writes about healthcare for The Upshot. She was previously a reporter at National Journal and the Concord Monitor and an editor of Legal Affairs And the Yale Alumni Magazine. And the reason why I'm going to start putting the authors of the articles uh, I'm giving to you people uh, in the show, because first of all, I'm not doing show notes. I'm just, if you just listen to the show, the show notes are the show. If you need show notes, go back and listen to the part where I talked about it in the show, okay? (laughs) Oh boy, it's like the Department of Redundancy department. No, but I want you guys to start, you know, meeting journalists. Take a look at their track record. Look at their resume. Where have they worked? What have they written? Who are these people filling the minds of the average American with drivel, putrid, poor examples of journalism? And I'm not saying that these people are doing that. These people are... They did a great job with this article. Very all-encompassing and informative. I didn't want to throw these two under the bus. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying that there are journalists out there that you guys need to know who they are and what they're all about. Because chances are they have a lot more ulterior motives than you are aware of. And they're not interested in giving you anything resembling the absolute truth. So be aware, okay? Just be aware of the journalists. The journalists, plural. Plural. That you expose yourselves to. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so here we go. Take a listen to this story. So China extends $31 million in emergency aid to Afghanistan. If you can believe that. Beijing recently promises grain medicines and 3 million COVID-19 vaccines. As it urges Taliban to cut ties with extreme Forces, quote, quote unquote. Amid growing protests against the Taliban, China has welcomed the end of three weeks of anarchy, unquote unquote, in Afghanistan. Oh, excuse me. adding it attaches great importance to the formation of the new interim government and the appointment of new officials. So that sounds like China wants to have a say in what's going on in Afghanistan. Now they're trying to extend a bit of an olive branch to the Taliban. Very strategic. Uh, September 9th, 2021, China has announced the $31 million worth of uh, emergency aid including coronavirus vaccines. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made the announcement on Wednesday during a meeting with foreign ministers of Afghanistan's neighboring countries, including Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. Uh, The Taliban must allow departures from Afghanistan, says uh, Blinken, who was recently questioned uh, in Congress and got ripped to shreds. Uh, Blinken says aid groups warn of impending humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. The Taliban, the Taliban announces new government in Afghanistan. The emergency aid will include... i uh, already been over that. In recent days, the Taliban has declared that China will be its main partner in rebuilding the war-torn country. People. If that doesn't sound like they're setting up both sides of the conflict that may be coming in the future that they want to control the outcome of. Boy. That that story wrote right uh, that story writes itself. Uh, in retali- here, it'll sound something like this. Quote, in retaliation for twenty years of um, occupation in the country of Afghanistan, <clears throat> Afghanistan and the Taliban today announced that they're and they, and with their allied China, are denouncing the United States of America, etc., etc., etc. People. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell the future. I'm not trying to say I'm a fortune teller. But man, if you can teach yourself to read between the lines with these government actions that are going on around the world right now, you're going to see people that their plan is moving right along. In his remarks on Wednesday, Wang was quoted by Jinghao State News Agency as saying that Afghanistan is standing at the crossroads as it faces humanitarian crises, including the COVID-19 pandemic. Some international forces may also use political, economic, and financial means to create new troubles for Afghanistan. So, they brought up Blinken uh, in this article, uh, and... I mean, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you guys have heard about General Milley contacting China without Biden, the Biden administration knowing about it. There's a lot of seeds being planted right now with the United States-China world stage, world political stage. We're, we're seeing foundations being laid and seeds being planted right now, my fellow Americans. Mark my words. At a virtual meeting, Wing also said that the U.S. and its allies were duty-bound to help Afghanistan follow the withdrawal. Following the withdrawal of the American troops, the common view of the international community, <laughs> the international community, is that the end of military intervention by the United States and its allies, allies should be the beginning of them assuming their responsibilities. Hmm. I will be interested to see if that happens. They are more obligated than any other country to provide economic livelihood and humanitarian assistance to the Afghan people and help Afghanistan maintain stability, prevent chaos, and move toward sound development on the premise of respecting the sovereignty and independence of Afghanistan. That's a joke. The reason why that's a joke, whoever this guy is from China, is because you know exactly what the Taliban plans to do, and that is going to be the epitome of my... And probably everybody's definition of what a, quote, humanitarian crisis, unquote, is going to look like. It, it does. It, it makes me feel really weird that we left Afghanistan in the way that we did. Because it causes a lot of problems for us on the world stage. And we're starting to see that. And we're going to probably see more of it as long as you got this android robot, senile, nutjob, idiot, progressive author of the crime bill most authoritarian corporatist president and politician in American history Joe Biden at the helm and I'm not a big fan of Trump either but boy you do a cost benefit analysis and Trump is clearly the lesser of two evils in this situation that's just my opinion I'm not saying Trump did a great job at all at all ugh so that's happening okay so so far we've been over the debt and the apparent reality that it's not sustain- sustainable and we've all known that for a long time so we got to ri- raise the debt ceiling in the you know fallout of covid-19 pandemic oh boy it's like history just repeating itself create a problem and then offer the new politician and the new party as the solution And it's just this time it's going to be on a way, way, way grander scale. And I don't know. You're right. I mean, I'm just blowing smoke. I don't have the facts and evidence really to back up those claims. I'm just, you know, speaking from my own point of view based on what I have learned and read throughout the course of my life. I don't know. I really wish it wasn't this way. But it just seems like this is the way it is. This is the way the world is going. The plan is moving right along. Let's, you and I, move on. Uh, let's talk about education and universities. Uh, a while ago, uh, there were a couple gentlemen. Uh, I think they're on the Joe Rogan podcast, they're on a bunch of different podcasts. I forget the guy's names. I know one of the guy's last name is uh, Bogosian. And I think it's, his name is Peter Bogosian and some other guy uh, that were that were, made themselves famous for submitting false, not based in reality, with zero facts and evidence uh, papers in the universities to be peer reviewed, um, and they were published and peer reviewed, and it turned out that. They had these universities had to retract all of it and and lose some face over the whole situation because these guys purposefully they, they went public and said, No, we did this on purpose to prove a point. And the point that we were trying to prove is that the the search for absolute truth and the, the desire to want to know reality and you know the the purity of th- what the university is supposed to represent. You know, in my Chomsky episode, I, I talked, you know, he talked about, you know, he spent his entire life in a research lab and, you know, there's no profit motive there and that's the way that we should all run our, our lives and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? You guys actually have a responsibility. Universities have a responsibility to not become factories for indoctrination and peddling, you know, shilling drivel just like the mainstream media and that's what the university you the universities got caught doing and this happened a few years back i could you know go find that episode of joe rogan if you guys want i forget what it's called but i'm sure if you look it up on the internet you uh, on the internet you can find it so that happened in reality okay so papers got published and it destroyed the credibility of the university that published it because these guys pulled a fast one on them and proved that the the governing bodies controlling all this information would gladly uh, pass off fantasy as reality, so long as how whatever you were writing about they agreed with and was in line with the progressive left's you know platforms and ideas, and ideology. It's sick. It makes me sick. It's gross. So fast forward uh, to present day. Here's a new article about Mr. Peter Bogosian, who was part of that whole scandal and that whole scheme to expose the university system. Take a listen to this. Uh, September 8th. 2021 my university sacrificed ideas for ideology so today i quit the more i spoke out against the illiberalism of this swallowed portland state university the more retaliation i faced and if you guys know about jordan peterson jordan peterson also faced some retaliation from university that he taught at for his ideas and for the things that he said and did and here we go peter bigosian has taught philosophy at Portland State University for the past decade. In the letter below, sent this morning to the university's provost, he explains why he is resigning. And I'm going to read this to you now because this is uh, amazing. This is awesome. Here we go, people. Grab a beverage, sit back, relax, and take a listen to this. Dear Provost Susan Jeffords, I'm writing you today to resign as assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. Over the last decade, it has been my privilege to teach at the university. My specialties are critical thinking, ethics, and the Socratic method. And I teach classes like science and pseudoscience and the philosophy of education. But in addition to exploring classic philosophers and traditional texts, I've invited a wide range of guest lecturers to address my classes, from flat earthers to Christian apologists to global climate skeptics to Occupy Wall Street advocates, and I am proud of my work. I invited those speakers not because I agreed with their worldviews, but primarily because I didn't. From those Messy and difficult conversations. I've seen the best of what our students can achieve. Questioning beliefs. While respecting believers. Staying even tempered. In challenging circumstances. And even changing their minds. I never once believed. Nor do I now. That the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion. Rather... I sought to create the conditions of and for rigorous thought to help them gain the tools to hunt and furrow for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. And this, remember when I told you I played in the Crazy Times episode, you know, an assortment uh, of teachers. Against critical race theory and all this progressive nutjob, left-wing crazy person bullshit, immature, hypocritical, dogshit <laughs> that I've been talking about repeatedly on the show. This guy agrees with those teachers. Sounds like, but brick by brick, step by step, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race, gender, and victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. Students at Portland State were not being taught how to think. Rather, they were being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues. Faculty and administrators have abdicated the university's truth-seeking mission and instead drive intolerance of divergent beliefs and opinions. This has created a culture of offense where students are now afraid to speak openly and honestly. And what does that sound like to you, people? People. That sounds like Kitty Worthman. in the Lessons of History episode. Remember, if you haven't listened to those podcasts, go back and check them out. This reminds me of Yonmi Park from North Korea. Saying that she couldn't speak openly and honestly. And we've been over countless examples of this very thing. I don't need to rehash them all for you. Here we go. I continue, or Peter Bogosian continues. I noticed signs of the illiberalism that has now fully swallowed the academy. uh, Quite early during my time at Portland State, I witnessed students refusing to engage with different points of view. Questions from faculty at diversity trainings, which challenged uh, that challenged approved narratives, were instantly dismissed. Instantly dismissed. They don't want you to think. They don't want you to associate. They don't want you to assemble. They don't want you to be able to freely move and transport yourself via airplane around this world as easily as you once could. And the reason why is because the prison planet is coming. The plan people is moving right along. Those who asked for evidence to justify new institutional policies were accused of microaggressions. And professors were accused of bigotry for assigning canonical texts written by philosophers who happened to have been European and male. Are you kidding me? If it doesn't sound like they're trying to erase your history, my fellow Americans, if you don't think that this is part of the communist subversion plan, You're fucking stupid. I'm sorry. I don't know what more I need to provide. I continue to say that, yet I continue to provide you with more useful facts, tips, stories, information, etc. At first I didn't realize how systemic this was and I believed I could question this new culture. So I began asking questions. What is the evidence that trigger warnings and safe spaces contribute to student learning? Why should racial consciousness be the lens through which we view our role as educators? How did we decide that cultural appropriation is immoral? Unlike my colleagues, I ask these questions out loud and in public. I decided to study the new values that were engulfing Portland State and so many other educational institutions. Values that sound wonderful, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, but might actually be just the opposite. The opposite. The more I read the primary source material produced by critical theorists, the more I suspected that their conclusions reflected the postulates of an ideology, not insights based on evidence. I began networking with student groups who had similar concerns and brought in speakers to explore these subjects from a critical perspective, and it became increasingly clear to me that the incidents of illiberalism I had witnessed over the years were not just isolated events, but part of an institution-wide problem. The more I spoke out about these issues, the more retaliation I faced. And who did he face retaliation from, my fellow Americans? Was it the tolerant, progressive left? Early in the 2016-2017 academic year, a former student complained about me and the university initiated a Title IX investigation. A Title IX investigation uh, are part of a federal law designed to protect people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance. <laughs> Doesn't every student receive federal financial assistance, basically? My accuser, a white male, made a slew of baseless accusations against me, which university confidentiality rules unfortunately prohibit me from discussing any further. What I can share is that students of mine who were interviewed during the process told me that the investigator asked them if they knew anything about me beating my wife and children. Character assassination. That's what the progressive left does. That's what they and their media tried to do to Donald J Trump for his entire presidency. Whether you like Trump or not, that's the facts, people. And you want proof? Go look at the mainstream media coverage of Biden and compare it side by side with the coverage of Trump. I rest my case. Your honor, the pro- the prosecution has no further questions. <laughs> Uh, So, with Title IX investigations, there's no due process. So, I didn't have access to the particular accusations, the ability to confront my accuser, and I had no opportunity to defend myself. Finally, the results of the investigation were revealed in December 2017. Here are the last two sentences of the report. Global diversity and inclusion finds... There is insufficient evidence that Boghossian violated PSU's prohibited discrimination and harassment policy. Global diversity and inclusion recommends he receive coaching. Oh, so now we're we're going to re-educate you. We're going to change the programming. Like we've heard from various sources in the past. It's all programming, right? Not only was there no apology for the false accusations, but the investigator also told me that in the future, I was not allowed to render my opinion about protected classes or teach in such a way that my opinion about protected classes should be known. A bizarre conclusion to absurd charges. Universities can enforce ideological conformity just through the threat of these investigations. Bam. There it is there it is. That's the plan. They want to be able to do this for the rest of their existence. It's all part of the plan that's moving right along. I eventually became convinced that corrupted bodies of scholarship were responsible for justifying radical departures from the traditional role of liberal arts schools and basic civility on campus. There was no I'm sorry, there was an urgent need to demonstrate that morally fashionable papers, no matter how absurd, could be published. I believed, then, that if I exposed the theoretical flaws of this body of literature, the progressive everything movements literature is what he's talking about, I could help the university community avoid building edifices on such shaky ground. So in 2017, I co-published an intentionally garbled, peer-reviewed paper that took aim at the new orthodoxy. Its title, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. (laughs) This example of pseudo-scholarship, which was published in Cogent Social Sciences, magazine I would assume, argued that penises were products of the human mind and responsible for climate change. <laughs> Immediately thereafter, I revealed the article as a hoax designed to shed light on the flaws of the peer review and academic publishing systems. And before I continue, uh, this is you know what scares the shit out of me most about all of this story is the flaws of the peer review. The peer review is supposed to be the baseline of where science meets. As close to truth as I think it can get. As close as it gets. And the peer review has been perverted. Bastardized. Made to be a mockery by these guys. And they're heroes, in my opinion. The world needs more people like this, people. (laughs) Hey, people. The world needs more people like these people. Okay? Okay. Shortly thereafter, swastikas in the bathroom with my name under them began appearing in two bathrooms near the philosophy department. These little petulant idiot kids are probably the ones doing that shit. That's not in the letter. Ah, that's just me. They also occasionally showed up on my office door, in one instance accompanied by a bag of feces. Our university remained silent. When it acted, it was against me, not the perpetrator's. This is, this is what's happening in your world right now. On college campuses. You really want to send your kids to college, my fellow Americans, anymore? <laughs> uh, m- one of my best friends, him and his wife, they decided to homeschool their kids. And they're, they're, they're lucky to be able to do that. Not everybody can do that. But the poor of this country, whose parents cannot send them to private school and have no choice but to send them to public schools. And now even into the universities that you're supposed to be paying for. Even their indoctrination centers now. People, they got us by the balls. It's a big club. And you and I are not in the big club. I continued to believe, perhaps naively... That if I exposed the, thought, the flawed thinking on which Portland State's new values were based, ooh, good one, I could shake the university from its madness. In 2018, I co-published a series of absurd or morally repugnant peer-reviewed articles. In journals that focused on issues of race and gender. In one of them, we argued that there was an epidemic of dog rape at dog parks and proposed that we leash men the way we leash dogs. <laughs> Our purpose was to show that certain kinds of scholarship are based not in finding truth, but on advancing social grievances. This worldview is not scientific, and it is not rigorous. Administrators and faculty were so angered by the papers that they published an anonymous piece in the student paper, and Portland State filed formal charges against me. Their accusation research misconduct that's hilarious based on the absurd premise that the journal editors who accepted our intentionally deranged articles were human subjects quote unquote I was found guilty of not receiving approval to experiment on human subjects can you believe that people this isn't fantasy this is real life people this is real life Meanwhile, ideological intolerance continued to grow at Portland State. In March 2018, a tenured professor disrupted a public discussion I was holding with author Christina Hoff Sommers and evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying. In June 2018, someone triggered the fire alarm during my conversation with popular cultural critic Carl Benjamin. In October of 2018, an activist pulled out the speaker wires to interrupt a panel from former Google engineer James Damore. The university did nothing to stop or address this behavior. No one was punished or disciplined. For me, the years that followed were marked by continued harassment. I'd find flyers around campus of me with a Pinocchio nose. I was spit on and threatened by passerbys while walking to class. I was informed by students that my colleagues were telling them to avoid my classes. And of course, I was subjected to more investigation. I wish I could say that what I am describing hasn't taken a personal toll, but it has taken exactly the toll it was intended to. An increasingly intolerable working life and without the protection of tenure. This isn't about me. This is about the kind of institutions we want and the values we choose. Amen. Every idea that has advanced human freedom has always and without fail been initially initially condemned and Schopenhauer would agree with that. As individuals, we often seem incapable of remembering this lesson, but that is exactly what our institutions are for, to remind us that the freedom to question is our fundamental right. Educational institutions should remind us that that right is also our duty. Portland University has failed in fulfilling this duty. In doing so, it has failed not only its students, but the public that supports it. While I am grateful for the opportunity to have taught at Portland State for over a decade, it has become clear to me that this institution is no place for people who intend to think freely and explore ideas. This is not the outcome I wanted, but I feel morally obligated to make this choice. For 10 years, I have taught my students the importance of living by your principles. One of mine is to defend our system of liberal education from those who seek to destroy it. Who would I be if I didn't? Sincerely, Peter Bogosian. Peter Bogosian, sir, I applaud you. I applaud your courage. I applaud. The turmoil that you had to endure in order to proceed with your felt moral obligation. With your felt duty to do what's right and what's moral in this world. And it's a shame more of you, my fellow Americans, don't follow in his footsteps. Uh, Thucydides, 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 (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. He was a Greek or Roman philosopher or something. You know what? Fuck, now I gotta go look up who this guy is. But Thucydides once said, The society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting by fools. And I don't know how to pronounce this dude's name, uh, but he is... He was an Athenian historian and general. His history of the Peloponnesian War recounts the 5th century B.C. war between Sparta and Athens until the year 411 B.C. Uh, Thucydides... "...has been dubbed the father of scientific history by those who accept his claims to have applied strict standards of impartiality and evidence-gathering and analysis of cause and effect without reverence to intervention by the deities, as outlined in his introduction to his work." He also has been called the father of the school of political realism, which views the political behavior of individuals and the subsequent outcomes of relations between states as ultimately mediated by and constructed upon the emotions of fear and self-interest. Very interesting. His text is still studied at universities and military colleges worldwide. Well, I don't know. I don't know, maybe military colleges, but how about regular American colleges? Huh? (laughs) I mean, what is happening, people? I gotta figure out how to pronounce this guy's name. Here, there's a little thing I just looked up. I'm gonna figure it out. How do I pronounce uh, Thucydides pronunciation? Here we go. Let's take a look. Thucydides. Thucydides? Thucydides. Oh my god, I feel like a fucking idiot. <laughs> what a dumbass. That's a fun one to say. Uh, let's move on. Um, I recently also heard that part of Joe Biden's plan for education, since we're on the topic, uh, I think he planned on extending school to be 17 years. 17 years of school between... Um, you know, kindergarten and, I don't know, 17th grade. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I heard that somewhere. I mean, man, what is happening, people? I'm I'm telling you, I'm scared for your kids. I don't know if I'm bringing kids into this world, not in the United States of America right now. I feel like we're on the precipice of the beginning of the end. It's getting crazy out there. You know what else is starting to scare the shit out of me? Australia, have you guys been paying attention to what's going on in Australia? Oh boy, it is the police state incarnate, people are getting their asses whooped, I don't even know if they're just trying to break up a protest or if they're just like marching through neighborhoods now, making sure people are following the COVID protocols under the guise of whatever, so I'm going to get into that in a minute. But here's another weird thing that happened recently that I have got to talk about. And so here we go. I'm going to play you a clip of something that recently happened. Joe Biden recently had a super awkward press conference thing to where he was standing at the podium and he had Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom of England on one side And the Prime Minister Morrison from Australia on the other side on a TV screen. And they gave kind of a press conference about this new partnership deal that they just announced. And think about it. So China's going to help Afghanistan in support of the Taliban. Uh... Now that the United States has pulled out of their forever 20-year war there, seemingly. Seemed like we were there forever and no one knows why. And now we're going to partner with Australia and the United Kingdom. Does it not seem like battle sides are being drawn right here? Is this preparation for World War III? I don't know. You be the judge. Here we go. (laughs)
1: breaking news. Joe Biden set to give a speech on a so-called national security initiative. He's reportedly set to announce a joint deal with Britain and Australia to share advanced technologies and efforts to counter China's rise. This will allegedly allow for the three countries to share artificial intelligence, cyber, and long-range strike capabilities. This is communist China threatens the West consistently. My opinion, Biden's remarks are a smokescreen designed to give the left-wing press something to write about other than Biden leaving behind hundreds of americans and thousands of afghan allies in afghanistan this dog and pony show is designed to make you forget that our southern border remains wide open allowing the china virus and various bad actors open access to our land it's hard to imagine anyone with less credibility on national security than the leader of a socialist democrat party unless of course one factors in general white rage millie himself uh, once joe biden begins his yammering and stammering we'll bring you his disjointed comments live Meanwhile, let's bring in our panel, Chairman of Stand Up America U.S. Foundation and retired U.S. Army Major General Paul Valladolid, along with, well, wait a minute, hold on, here comes Mr. Biden, folks. Stick with us.
2: I'm very pleased to join two great friends of freedom and of Australia, Prime Minister Johnson and President Biden. Today, we join our nations in a next-generation partnership built on a strong foundation of proven trust We have always seen the world through a similar lens. We have always believed in a world that favours freedom, that respects human dignity, the rule of law, the independence of sovereign states and the peaceful fellowship of nations. And while we have always looked to each other to do what we believe is right, we have never left at each other. Always together, never alone. Our world is becoming more complex, especially here in our region, the Indo-Pacific. This affects us all. The future of the Indo-Pacific will impact all our futures. To meet these challenges, to help deliver the security and stability our region needs, we must now take our partnership to a new level. A partnership that seeks to engage, not to exclude, to contribute, not take, and to enable and empower, not to control or coerce. And so, friends, all this is born a new enhanced trilateral security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. AUKUS, a partnership where our technology, our scientists, our industry, our defence forces are all working together to deliver a safer and more secure region that ultimately benefits all. AUKUS will also enhance our contribution to our growing network of partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. ANZUS, our ASEAN friends, our bilateral strategic partners, the Quad, Five Eyes Countries and of course our dear Pacific family. The first major initiative of AUKUS will be to deliver a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia. Over the next 18 months, we will work together to seek to determine the best way forward to achieve this. This will include an intense examination of what we need to do to exercise our nuclear stewardship responsibilities here in Australia. We intend to build these submarines in Adelaide, Australia, in close cooperation with the United Kingdom and the United States. But let me be clear, Australia is not seeking to acquire nuclear weapons or establish a civil nuclear capability. And we will continue to meet all our nuclear non-proliferation obligations. Australia has a long history of defence cooperation with the United States and the United Kingdom. For more than a century, we have stood together for the course of peace and freedom, motivated by the beliefs we share, sustained by the bonds of friendship we have forged, enabled by the sacrifice of those who have gone before us and inspired by our shared hope for those who will follow us. And so today, friends, we recommit ourselves to this cause and a new office vision.
3: I'm delighted to to join President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Morrison to announce that the United Kingdom, Australia and the United States are creating a new trilateral defence partnership known as AUKUS with the aim of working hand in glove to preserve security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. We're opening a new chapter in our friendship, and the first task of this partnership will be to help Australia acquire a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines, emphasizing, of course, that the submarines in question will be powered by nuclear reactors, not armed with nuclear weapons. And our work will be fully in line with our non-proliferation obligations. This will be one of the most complex and technically demanding projects in the world, lasting for decades and re- requiring the most advanced technology. It will draw on the expertise of the UK has <clears throat> over generations, dating back to the launch of the Royal Navy's first nuclear submarine over 60 years ago. And together with the other opportunities from August. ...creating hundreds of highly skilled jobs across the United Kingdom, including in Scotland, the North of England and the Midlands... ...taking forward this government's driving purpose of levelling up across the whole country. We will have a new opportunity to reinforce Britain's place at the leading edge of science and technology... ...strengthening our national expertise and perhaps most significantly, the UK, Australia... And the u.s will be joined even more closely together reflecting the measure of trust between us the depth of our friendship and the enduring strength of our shared values of freedom and democracy (laughs) only a handful of countries possess nuclear-powered submarines and it is a momentous decision for any nation to acquire this formidable capability and perhaps equally momentous for any other state to come to its aid. But Australia is one of our oldest friends, a kindred nation and a fellow democracy and a natural partner in this enterprise. (laughs) Now the UK will embark on this project alongside our allies, making the world safer and generating jobs across our United Kingdom.
4: Thank you. Over to you, Mr. President. Thank you, Boris, and, and I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. I uh, am honored today to be joined by two of America's closest allies, Australia and the United Kingdom, to launch a new phase of the trilateral security cooperation among our countries. As Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson said, I want to thank you for this partnership, your vision as we embark together on this strategic mission. Although Australia, the UK and US partnership, the AUKUS, mask. it sounds strange with all these acronyms, but it's, it's a good one. AUKUS, our nations will update and enhance our shared ability <coughs> to take on the, the threats of the 21st century, just as we did in the 20th century. Together, our nations and our brave fighting forces have stood shoulder to shoulder for literally more than 100 years through the trench fighting in World War One, the island hopping in World War II during the frigid winters in Korea, and the scorching heat of the Persian Gulf. The United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom have long been faithful and capable partners, and we're even closer today. Today, we're taking another historic step to deepen and formalize cooperation among all three of our nations, <clears throat> because we all recognize the imperative of ensuring peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific over the long term. We need to be able to address both the current strategic environment in the region and how it may evolve. Because the future of each of our nations, and indeed the world, depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific, enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. It's
0: because China's building a huge uh, Navy, dude. It's about
4: investing in our greatest source of strength, our alliances and updating them to better meet the threats of today and tomorrow. They're scared of China. It's about connecting America's existing allies and partners in new ways and amplifying our ability to collaborate, recognizing there is no regional divide separating the interests of our Atlantic and Pacific partners. Indeed, this effort reflects the broader trend of key European countries playing an extremely important role in the Indo-Pacific, France in particular. Already has substantial Indo-Pacific presence and is a key partner and ally in strengthening the security and prosperity of the region. The United States looks forward to working closely with France and other key countries as we go forward. And finally, this initiative is about making sure that each of us has a modern capability, the most modern capabilities we need to maneuver and defend against rapidly evolving threats. AUKUS will bring together our sailors our scientists, and our industries to maintain and expand our edge in military capabilities and critical technologies such as cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, and undersea domains. Now, as a key project under AUKUS, we are launching consultations with Australia's acquisition of conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarines for its navy, conventionally armed I wanna be exceedingly clear about this. We're not talking about nuclear-armed submarines. These are conventionally armed submarines that are powered really are by nuclear talking reactors. About nuclear something. This technology is proven, it's safe. And the United States and UK have been operating nuclear-powered submarines for decades. Yeah, no shit. I have asked Secretary Austin of the Department of Defense to lead so this effort the for the US government in close collaboration with the Department of Energy and the Department of State our governments will now launch an 18-month consultation period to determine every element of this program from workforce to training requirements to production timelines to safeguards and non-proliferation measures and to nuclear stewardship and safety to ensure full compliance with each of our compliance. nation's commitments under the nuclear Nonproliferation treaty we'll all undertake this effort in a way that reflects the long-standing leadership in global nonproliferation and rigorous verification standards in partnership and consultation with the International Atomic Energy Agency. So I want to thank the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson oh, nice, for their friendship yeah. but mostly important for their leadership and partnership as we undertake this new phase of our security cooperation and the United States will also continue to work with ASEAN and the Quad as was stated earlier our five treaty allies and other close partners in the Indo-Pacific, as well as allies and partners in Europe and around the world to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific and build a future of peace, opportunity for all the people of the region. We're joining together. Our partnerships are getting stronger. This is what we're about. I want to thank you all, and I look forward to seeing both of you in person very soon, I hope.
0: In remembering their names. Thank
4: you.
1: Well, uh, press conference that was, it's shored out well, uh, the other countries, uh, the British Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, the, uh... Yeah, Scott Morrison, that's his name,
0: Mr. President. The Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. <laughs> oh, boy. It is a crazy, sad state of affairs we are in. And people, there is nothing in the middle of Australia. It's all desert and aborigines. You don't think they're going to put some missile silos out there to defend themselves from the rising Chinese threat, the rapidly accelerating threat or whatever he just got done telling you? boy people you should probably start paying attention to some of this stuff let's talk about mr prime minister morrison's home country australia for a sec shall we have you been paying attention to this
5: A radical plan to crack down on social media abuse is being considered by the federal government. For more, Nine's Oliver Haig joins us live in Adelaide. Ollie, how will it work? Layla, good morning. Essentially it will work the same as a passport. Australians forced to submit 100 points of identification like their driver's licence or passport when using social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter. Now police would have access to those social media accounts and it's all part of a crackdown on online abuse. Now users could be liable for defamation suits or even criminal prosecution and it's all part of a plan hoping to deter people from engaging in bad behaviour. Now the recommendation were handed down by a federal parliamentary inquiry. There are reforms that are being considered by the Morrison government, with the chairman saying there is merit to remove to remove uh, the veil of being anonymous. Layla, <laughs> so what
0: you're trying to tell me is that privacy is going away, and vaccine passports are real in Australia, and they're going to come and take control of your social media sites. If you pose a threat. Right now there's people protesting in the streets. There's police in riot gear. It's, it's like 1984 Brave New World Orwellian police state dystopian nightmare. Come to life. And speaking of gaffes from our gaff master, President Biden, take a listen to this gaff in the Australian news recently. Here we go.
6: Will exposure exposure sites be put back in place, especially with reopening and people going back to pubs and stuff, because our exposure sites still, will they be put back in place to be listed once we are reopening, because they're not at the moment? Um, We will be looking at what contact tracing looks like in the new world order. Yes, it will be pubs and clubs and other things if we have a positive case there. Our response may be differently different if we know that people are fully vaccinated. So we're working through a number of those um, issues, but we will have to reflect and learn.
0: Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, got it. Sweet. Uh, uh, what was that you said? Uh, can can you say that again, exactly how you just said it? One more time for me. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks.
6: That, exposure sites be put back in place, especially with reopening and people going back to pubs and stuff? Because our exposure sites still, will they be put back in place to be listed once we are reopening? Because they're not at the moment. Um, We will be looking at what contact tracing looks like in the new world order. Yes, it will be clubs and other things if we have a positive case there. Our response may be differently, different if we know that people are fully vaccinated. So we're working through a number of those um, issues, but
0: we will have to reflect and learn. We're working through a a lot of those issues and we're gonna have to reflect and learn here in the New World Order, she says. Really, you don't say? The New World Order, huh? Hmm. Uh, Who briefed you? Before you gave this uh, public comment, can I, can I speak to your manager? Excuse me, miss? Can I, can I speak to your manager who told you uh, to give that public comment? Uh, I'd like to talk to him. <laughs> uh, and if you want to get really creeped out, check this shit out. This is Lori Lightfoot, I think is her name, mayor of Chicago. works is there's gotta be compliance
7: with the executive branch because otherwise it doesn't work. So you gotta eliminate that compliance and you make a mandate um, and then you do training, particularly in the city, I'll call them licensing departments, whether it's zoning, buildings, um, housing will be impacted by it. planning certainly um and it's and you and you pick the people that run those agencies and the deputies that are pledging allegiance to the new world order and good governance and then uh, I uh, have what? the inspector general do some spot on it to make sure that there is
0: the 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 new world order and good governance Where have I heard heard the term good governance before? Good governance, hmm. Where have I heard that term good governance
5: before? We economic hitmen really have been the ones responsible for creating this first truly global empire, and we work many different ways.
0: John Perkins, people, author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman.
5: But perhaps the most common is that we will identify a a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually goes to the country, instead it goes to our big corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, industrial parks, ports, things that benefit a few rich people in that country, in addition to our corporations but really don't help the majority of the people at all. However, those people, the whole country, is left holding a huge debt. It's such a big debt they can't repay it, and that's part of the plan, that they can't repay it. And so at some point, we economic hitmen men go back to them and say, listen, you lost a lot of money, can't pay your debt, so sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies. Allow us to build a military base in your country or send troops in support of ours to some place in the world like Iraq or vote with us on the next UN vote to have their electric utility company privatized, and their water and sewage system privatized, and sold to U.S. corporations or other multinational corporations. So there was that whole mushrooming thing, and it's so typical of the way the IMF and the World Bank work, that you put a country in debt, it's such a big debt it can't pay it, and then you offer to refinance that debt and, and, and pay even more interest. And you demand, this quid pro quo which you call a conditionality or good governance what was that? which means good basically governance? that they've got to sell off their resources in, in, including many of their social services their utility companies their school systems sometimes their their, their penal systems their insurance systems to foreign corporations so it's a, it's a double triple quadruple whammy
0: yeah that's where i've heard that term good governance before. you know there's there's just a few too many new world order <clears throat> good governance Freudian slips I've been hearing from people in positions of power around this world as of late. And pff, what's happening in Australia people is coming home to the United States sooner or later. We're entering into partnerships with Australia. We're gearing up uh, against China in the Indo-Pacific. Meanwhile, you know, the economic hitmen of the world are going around the world trying to get people into, you know, good governance agreements. Now Lori Lightfoot's talking about it. So clearly the same people are getting briefed by the same people is what it seems like. There's clearly a plan that a lot of people know about, but they're not really coming out and just saying it. They're kind of beating around the bush, dancing around it. You know, we're partnering partnering with our partners and we're having meetings and we're meeting about having meetings about our commitment to doing what's right and carrying on the legacy of the blah, 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 blah Right. All the, all the, all the reality gets just buried in jargon and rhetoric. But I mean, let's keep talking about Australia for a sec. Listen to
7: this clip.
6: have finally spoken three weeks after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. Biden has been claiming his Afghan ex- exit is a victory.
4: The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals.
6: It's absurd. This was no victory. Not only has the Biden administration bungled w- the withdrawal, but they're actually now talking about giving the Taliban aid.
1: You say we're going to work with the Taliban. Does that include the prospect of giving them aid?
4: Well, first of all, we do believe that there is an important dimension of humanitarian assistance that should go directly to the people of Afghanistan. They need help with respect to health and food aid and other forms of subsistence, and we do intend to continue that. Secondly, when it comes to our economic and development assistance relationship with the Taliban, that will be about the Taliban's actions. It will be about whether they follow through on their commitments.
6: Aid money to the Taliban, to terrorists – The U.S. has gone mad. 20 years we spent in Afghanistan. Young soldiers gave up their life for the cause. It's all been trashed. Global terror is at large once again. And as we come up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, in just a week's time, instead of us looking back from a position of safety and security, suddenly Islamic terror is re-energised. I spoke about these issues with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's former senior policy advisor, his right-hand woman, Mary Kissel. She is now the executive vice president for financial services firm Stevens. Kissel herself was present at the signing of the Taliban agreement, and I asked her why the Trump administration had decided to negotiate with the Taliban in the first place. Mary Kissel, thank you so much for your time. Now, we went into this war to defeat terrorism in the wake of 9-11. How concerned are you now that Afghanistan may become a terrorist stronghold once again with both Taliban and ISIS-K
7: putting us all at risk? Uh, Well, the short answer is deeply concerned, Sherry. The Taliban is a terrorist organisation. And with the Taliban controlling Kabul and the rest of the country, I think it's safe to say that we have almost exactly the same conditions, if not worse, than the conditions that preceded 9-11. Add on top of that that you have other terrorist organizations, for instance ISIS, um, and you have state actors like the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is harboring al-Qaeda's leadership, and you put that into the mix, um, plus the groups that are housed in Pakistan, and I think you have a very toxic brew. I'm interested
6: in whether you would have continued down this course. Secretary Pompeo said Trump wanted to withdraw from January 2017, but the conditions weren't right to withdraw completely. So instead the US withdrew from 15,000 to 8,600 to 4,500, each time making sure that order could be maintained. Mary, does this mean that if there were signs the Taliban was planning a takeover, you would have kept a presence in Afghanistan?
7: Well, I think it's important to put this um, in an even broader context, because you had three successive presidents um, in Bush, Obama, and Trump, who all wanted to exit Afghanistan. Of course, under Bush and Obama, there really weren't serious attempts made to figure out if we could draw down these forces in a safe manner. President Trump took on that task, and I worked for Secretary Pompeo, I was his right-hand person. and. Um, He, I can tell you from firsthand experience, worked very, very, very hard to get both of those parties to the table, meaning the Afghan government and the Taliban, but he also talked to the Northern Alliance as well, Um, and so they took on that tough task, and as you note, uh, we were able to draw down troops in a manner that did not endanger either the security of our forces or the stability of the Afghan government. And so, you know, what would have happened in the future? Well, I think, you know, I don't like to hypothesize, but I think you could, you could certainly draw a conclusion that, you know, we were reviewing the conditions on the ground every time there was a drawdown. There was never a rush to the exit, and we were also establishing deterrence. The Taliban knew that if they set a foot wrong, we would hurt them, and the Afghan government knew that if they didn't keep up their end of the bargain, and let's be clear, the Afghan government was a deeply corrupt actor, they didn't keep up their end of the bargain, that those money flows would go away and there would be consequences. Biden has blamed President Trump for the catastrophic exit. He
6: says it was Trump's deal with the Taliban that obliged him to pull out. Mary, you were present at the signing of the Taliban agreement. Why was the decision made to negotiate with them at all? And what was it like being in the room with the Taliban when the, those negotiations were taking place?
7: Well, let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Remember, there wasn't just an agreement with the Taliban. On the same day that Secretary Pompeo was in Doha, the defense secretary was in Kabul signing an agreement with the Afghan government. And that's a point that I think um, should be reiterated. It's not getting a lot of mention in the press. Um, It was always made clear from the very beginning to both sides that if the terms of these agreements were not met, this was a conditions-based set of arrangements, meaning that the United States would not pull out forces, would not withdraw if either side broke broke these these conditions. And as a result, you had no Americans killed um, in the last 13 months that the Trump administration was in, in office. No one in the Trump administration was under any illusions about the nature of the Taliban. They're terrorists, they're bad guys. We knew that, Um, and so we dealt with them in the same way that we dealt with other bad actors, like the Chinese Communist Party, um, like the Islamic Republic of Iran. We approached all of these nations, North Korea is another one, um, with shows of force. And so it was made clear from the very beginning that there would be consequences if the other side didn't hold up their end of the bargain. That wasn't unique to Afghanistan. That was the way that we dealt with bad actors the world over. I'm fascinated to hear you put the
6: Chinese Communist Party in the same basket as the Taliban. While they're both bad actors, do you really think China has become like a terrorist group?
7: Well, different types of bad actors. The Chinese Communist Party, we declared a, a genocidal regime that committed crimes against humanity and genocide, against the Uyghur Muslims and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. And um, Australia, um, Britain, many other nations of the free world agreed with us on that, and so did the Biden administration. Um, They reiterated and underlined that finding. So in China, as Australians know well, you're dealing with a a totalitarian state um, that is, bent on making the world safer for their form of totalitarianism. Uh, it doesn't mean that we couldn't talk to the regime, we, we did. Um, I was present for some of those conversations, too, and um, it was made very clear to them uh, that, there, that we expected a fair and level playing field on issues like trade, uh, that there would be consequences Um, if they uh, decided to steal intellectual property or undermine international institutions that were very important to us. We just saw a very good example of that with the World Health Organization and the mess that came of the pandemic that was born in Wuhan. The WHO covered that up at China's behest. So yeah, it's a very bad actor. And I think it's important that we link all of these things together. I think you can't think about places, for instance, like Afghanistan in a silo you have to think about Afghanistan in concert with its neighbors, Iran, Pakistan, China. Um, these guys all talk to each other, and in many circumstances, they share the same strategic goals, which is uh, not good news for the for the free world. What does this Afghanistan withdrawal say about
6: Joe Biden's willingness and ability to defend not only America but its
7: allies as well? Let's go even further. Um, what about after the Taliban took over Kabul, well, the President of the United States has every measure of power at his fingertips. He could have flown in new troops. We could have surged in and retaken Bagram Airport, uh, Air Force Base, rather. We could have um, forcibly created a corridor to get our people out, and the President chose not to do that. Um, why? I, I think historians will will have to figure that out, But. I know what the result is. The result is that every bad guy around the world is looking at Washington and not seeing resolve. And many of our allies, Australia included, have every right to look at Washington and worry that the next time that we are challenged by a bad actor, will this president have the nerve to defend American interests? It's a big question mark. And I think for everyone who values or safety and security, it's a a deep concern. And by the way, I say this, sitting in the middle of New York City, we're about to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I'll tell you, there are a lot of very nervous people here.
6: Well, just on Australia, President Biden only just spoke to our Prime Minister Scott Morrison about Afghanistan, and yet Australian forces were standing side by side with America in the fight against terror. The United States also did not give us its vaccines that were expiring in August. We've had to rely on other countries. Does it sadden you to see an American administration appear to walk away from Australia like this?
7: Well, uh, President Trump didn't exactly start off on the best foot with your former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull either. So um, we have had, um, you know, presidents who haven't started off on the right foot with your prime ministers, but I think the question that you're asking is, more on the national security front, can can we have confidence um, that the president will do all of the things that are laid out in the ANZUS treaty? Um, I would hope so. Um, we really do have no, no closer partner than Australia. And it is disappointing um, that the relationship hasn't been prioritized to the degree that I think that we prioritized in the Trump administration, particularly under Secretary Pompeo, um, where the ties between our two countries were probably closer than they've ever been. But I have hope I'm, uh, you know, these situations don't last forever. We have elections, you have elections. Um, And and hopefully after this, after this debacle, there are some people doing some real soul searching in Washington and, you know, prioritizing our, our best friends because that's really the best way that I can put it. I mean, we are, best friends.
0: So, yeah, if uh, you ever want to know how the rest of the world talks about the United States, uh, this is how uh, the Australian press talks about uh, or was talking about the United States with regard to how we left Afghanistan. And this woman's name is uh, Senior Advisor to Secretary of State Mary Kissel. And you know, one of my questions when I was listening to her. Is you know, doesn't making an or no? I think she actually commented on this. Doesn't making an agreement with the Taliban legitimize them? And isn't that what terrorist organizations want? And isn't that what we're like the last thing on earth you should do is legitimize a terrorist organization? It's like you're telling the world that they won. Who won the Afghanistan war? The Taliban won. I mean, it's just gross. It's like you just it's like we just left and gave up. Left people to die. It's like a hundred times worse than Benghazi. Where's the outrage? Where's the public disgust? My fellow Americans <laughs> It's coming. The surveillance police state is coming and the plan is moving right along. So here's here's a little write-up I found about what exactly is actually going on in Australia and what started all of this um, crackdowns and, and what, you know, beatings, public beatings of the people by the police forces or whatever. So the New South Wales government in Australia sent a threat to the unvaccinated throughout Greater Sydney. The government announced that fully vaccinated Australians will begin getting some of their freedoms back once 70% of the population is vaccinated. But the hopeful promise came with a chilling threat it's only for the people who are vaccinated. So you've been warned. If you're not vaccinated, come forward and get the vaccine. Otherwise, you won't be able to participate in the many freedoms that people have at 70% vaccination new south wales state premier gladys burge killian added the premier has laid out a path Out of lockdown, that begins with 70% of Australians in New South Wales being vaccinated, and more freedoms will be given as more Australians get vaccinated. At 80% full vaccination, more freedoms will become available, such as attending major events, international travel, and community sports. This plan keeps the deal, keeps the faith with the people of Australia and the people of New South Wales set out on the national plan. Prime Minister Scott Morrison told reporters this new roadmap has been proposed after large protests and petition drives began taking place throughout New South Wales against lockdowns, vaccine mandates, and vaccine passports. Okay, so that's going on there. And then I found an article talking about vaccine mandates. I know I can't get off the vaccine mandates topic, but I got to keep talking about it. What legal legal ground do governors have to push back on vaccine mandates? So here, I'm gonna read this little article to you real quick. The crux of the debate is where one's personal freedom lies in relation to the broader health and rights of the nation. A century ago, in 1905, the Supreme Court was asked a similar question and sided with the vaccine mandates. In 1905, at the height of a smallpox outbreak and at a time when infectious diseases were the number one killer in America, the court considered whether Cambridge, Massachusetts could force people to get vaccinated for it. There was intense and passionate resistance to these vaccine mandates, with some people going so far as to burn their arm with nitric acid to make it look like they had smallpox, which left a scar. A local pastor, Henning Jacobson, resisted claiming and his son had bad reactions claiming him and his son had bad reactions to earlier vaccines uh they sued cambridge and argued that compulsion to introduce disease into a health system is a violation of liberty and that being forced to take the vaccine violated his 14th amendment rights which says that no state shall state deprive any person of life liberty or property that was a relatively easy uh No for the court. In a 7-2 ruling, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, it decided that jurisdictions do have the right to require people to get vaccinated. Back then, the government was much more forceful about it, knocking down people's doors to get them vaccinated. So this actually happened in the United States people. Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote uh, rather uh, presciently for today's pandemic that upon the principle of self-defense of paramount necessity, a community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of its members. He hit at this core idea among vaccine mandate skeptics that personal liberty must come above all else. Liberty, he wrote, is not... An absolute right in each person to be in all times and in all circumstances wholly free from restraint. But even as the justices expounded on where the lines of civil liberty are drawn, they didn't make broader sweeping determinations about vaccine mandates. It was specific to this Cambridge case. An anti-vaccination league, not just an anti-vaccine mandate, got started up a few years after that, Writes Nicholas Mosvick of the National Constitution Center, and over the years, the Jacobson case got re-challenged and re-upheld. The Supreme Court was generally leaned to the side, uh, generally lean to the side of giving the government authority to protect public health. And I think this is this Jacobson case is what Laura Ingram was talking about, the Jacobson case, and that clip I played for you in a previous podcast where she's talk, talking to Derschwitz. Can't believe Dershowitz still gets on TV. You sick Epstein Island pedophile fuck. (laughs) Uh, Laws that restrict liberty rights need only be rationally related to any legitimate state interest and the court continues to accept most any plausible reason as justification. Three scholars wrote what the state of Massachusetts wrote in 2005 summarizing the court's various other rulings. The American Civil Liberties Union recently raised another Supreme Court case for people to say they won't get vaccinated on religious grounds. The 1944 case Prince versus Massachusetts, where the court decided a Jehovah's Witness could continue to employ her child on the street to sell literature. But the justices put boundaries on religious freedom, writing that the right to practice religion freely does not include liberty to expose the community or the child to communicable disease or the latter to ill health or death. So they can force you, people. It's a perfect storm. It's a perfect scapegoat. It's perfect. It is a perfectly orchestrated plan. Today, arguably more modern laws and institutions apply to vaccine mandates. The Labor Department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration handles workplace safety, and it has the legal authority to mandate vaccines to keep workers safe, says Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney on the Obama and Trump administrations and now at University of Michigan Law School. It's not. That's not to say that Biden is mandating. Uh, what Biden is mandating is completely normal. A former OSHA official under the Obama administration said to my colleagues at the Post that the agency decided against mandating a hepatitis B vaccine for workers who regularly came into contact with the blood of people that have hepatitis B. The Biden administration also offering an out to vaccine skeptics. Face weakness. Uh, You can face weekly testing if you don't want to get vaccinated, and you've seen that already. It's a fair policy question of whether in a a capitalist society, businesses should be free to make their own decisions that pertain to the health of their employees and customers. That's really a free enterprise decision that should be made by companies and not the government says Rick Murray, chairman of the Government Affairs Committee at the Arizona Small Business Association. But now that the government has decided it's time to force workers to get vaccinated, there doesn't seem to be much legal ground skeptics have to stand on to say, no, people. The plan's moving right along. It's coming. Let's Turn up the optimism and the fun and play some punk rock. So, Face to Face just came out with a new album uh, called No Way Out But Through. And they have a song on the album that is the same title. So people, here we go. You've never been much for the truth unless it's something that you want to use. You waste so much time accepting the lies. I'm not much different than you. We lie to ourselves and we try to make do. Make up your mind and take up a side. There's no way out, but there is a way through. Whoa. You're building your case with no proof and filling your head to the rim With a ruse. You waste so much time accepting the lies. A bomb you've never... I'm sorry. A bomb you've got to try and defuse. The longer you wait and the shorter the fuse. Make up your mind and take up a side. There's no way out, but there is a way through. You've got nowhere else to go. There's no way out, but there is a way through. And you can't blame the world for your misfortune. So get up and dust yourself off. Set yourself right. There's no way out. But there is a way through. And you've got nowhere else to go. <laughs> and you got not a lot else to do. Right, people? Pretty soon. If your job goes away for COVID or automation or whatever. But you can't run away, people. You can't go run and hide. There's no way out, but there is a way through. This has been episode 61 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast, entitled Moving Right Along. And people, <laughs> make no mistake about it, the big club's big plan is moving Right along. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Go to the website politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com Buy a t-shirt. Check out the lyrics I've been posting in the blog sections. And uh, that's it. I love you guys. Take care of each other out there. Stay positive. Educate your mind. Exercise your body. Stay in tune and aware with what is going on around you in the world that you and I live in together. Thank you. I love you guys. Good night. We will see you next time.